Wes Boss has created popular courses on React, GraphQL, and JavaScript. With hundreds of thousands of students, Wes has earned a cult following for his fun, practical lessons on web development. The courses produced by Wes teach developers how to build useful applications, such as a complete e-commerce store, while they are learning subjects that are quite useful, such as React or GraphQL. Wes has built a career around studying and evangelizing JavaScript. His approach to education centers around practice, repetition, and hacking on fun projects. He also co-hosts a podcast called Syntax FM, and he is a frequent Twitter user. Wes is a rare mix of developer, teacher, businessman, and designer. Throughout his work, there is an artist's sense of attention to detail and a modern entrepreneur's sense of pricing and marketing. His sites such as JavaScript 30 and React for Beginners have the deliberate style of someone who has been building websites for a very, very long time. In today's episode, Wes Boss joins the show to give his perspective on JavaScript, entrepreneurship, and podcasting. Syntax FM is a great podcast that I recommend. To learn more about Wes's business and his background, aside from this episode, I recommend checking out the Indie Hackers podcast with him, which I put a link to in the show notes. That podcast really opened my mind up to exactly what Wes has done and how much scale there is to his one-person business. It can be pretty inspiring for people, so I, I really recommend checking out that episode. And before we get started, I want to mention that we are looking for several roles at Software Engineering Daily. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs to find these roles. We're looking for a few journalists, a podcaster, and an entrepreneur in residence. So if you're interested in these, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Wes Boss, you are the creator of several popular online courses about JavaScript. You're the host of Syntax FM, a popular podcast about front-end development. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you teach these popular courses on front-end technologies, and your courses center on building apps that feel like real-world use cases. For example, you have a detailed e-commerce application that you build from end to end. And this is in contrast to some other approaches of software engineering or computer science education that focus on the theoretical approaches. But your focus is more on applied software engineering rather than computer science theory. I guess it's not exactly just front end because it's it's full stack. It's a front end and then you know a, a node back end, for example. What led you to focus on this format of applied software engineering rather than the computer science theory? Yeah, so like I don't have any sort of computer science background. I went to school for what was called business technology management. So it's a business degree focused on on tech and like uh, management servers. And um, I majored in telecom, so I can I can tell you how to calculate an IP address if you if you need that. But other than that, I'm completely self-taught coding because I didn't actually take any coding classes in school. And I always found it extremely frustrating when you would see these examples of foobar baz and and all this stuff. And I'd just be sitting there being like, when would I ever have to use this myself? And I've also taught a lot of people in person as well. And I'm not saying that this is everybody, because certainly people come out of the woodwork anytime I say this. But I know that at least the type of person that takes my course much rather see 
this is how it's done in person. And this is where you would actually use something. And I'll sneakily teach you the concepts behind everything along the way. Like I'll teach you why we need to use map, reduce, filter. I'll teach you why we might want to improve the flow of a function or, or, or not have mutations or, or things like that. But in the context of an, an actual application that you would build. So that's sort of been my whole mantra. I, I don't use foobar baz. I don't like to do too much of just sitting there and writing loops or, or console logging things. I certainly do that when you need to teach a concept, but uh, I like to apply it as, as much as possible. And you cover this full stack JavaScript education. The idea of a full stack developer is much more popular today than it was in the past. So when I graduated college five or six years ago, me and most of my classmates categorized ourselves explicitly as a back-end developer or a web developer, and we kind of typecast ourselves as that role so that we would slot into some team at some corporation. But it seems like there's something that's changed that's led to the growth of full-stack development or, or comfort with assigning your yourself the role of a full-stack developer. Was there something that changed in web development that led to the growth of full-stack development? That's a good question. I don't really know because like when I first got into this stuff, it was just really out of necessity that I wanted to make things. And in order for me to make my thing, I needed to learn both sides of, of it. I need to learn how to build it front end. I need to learn also how to build it on the back end. So that was purely out of necessity on my end. But I think like, why is it becoming much more popular? I think first, because at least in, in my circles, Node is getting extremely popular. And the fact that someone who is pretty good at writing JavaScript on the client side can also pick up and continue to write because that was a huge hurdle for a lot of people is I just don't know the language that our back end is written in. And there's obviously other hurdles like understanding how do servers works and, and what are requests and and what are streams and all that, all that stuff that goes along with understanding how back end works. But if you take the hurdle of the language is something I already know. So there's something right there. And I think also what's starting to happen now with a lot of applications is a lot of the logic is actually happening in the client. A lot of the heavy lifting happens in the application itself, whether you're building that in something like React or whatever. And your back end is starting to become less more like headless, where it's just fetching data, massaging, massaging that data before it sends it, handling all the requests, handling all your authentication, things like that. So I'm not going to say that backend is getting like easier, but I, I think that it is definitely much more uh, approachable for someone to get in there and, and start to build and sort of make things work themselves if they don't necessarily have a whole lot of backend experience. Who are the typical types of students that are purchasing your courses? Are they brand new to software engineering? Are they looking for some continuing education? How does the prototypical student look? It's actually all over the place, which I'm surprised at. So I, I do have a lot of people who are, are new to programming in the last year or two. And that's certainly probably the people who I interact with most because they're the people that are asking a lot of questions and are really involved in the community. But there's also a huge portion of my audience is just uh, existing developers and existing teams. Like I've got, like if you name any large company, I bet that I've sold them 
some sort of either a team license or a couple licenses to some of their employees, just because the JavaScript moves so quickly that there's often good developers that just need to figure out how the stuff works. And they just grab my course, they run through it. They're good developers already. They understand how this all works and they're able to, to build the thing that we build in the course and then apply that to whatever it is that they're, they're building at their company. So it's something that surprised me because like my audience is not necessarily beginner. I don't have any beginner friendly stuff just yet. So I would say it's, it's probably more intermediate. But then again, you see you do see people all over the map that are looking to learn this tech. That's interesting what you say about the corporate training side of things. This is such a big business. I know Pluralsight makes a lot of money off of the developer retraining, corp, you know, enterprise sales. The same thing with O'Reilly. I think O'Reilly's biggest business now is the Safari books online, and they get these renewing enterprise license, licenses that every large tech company is, you know, has has purchased on a renewing basis. What's been the process of expanding into that enterprise sales model? Because it kind of seems like you you may maybe you started as just kind of putting up these courses and individual developers, but maybe you expanded to the the company model over time. Yeah, it was just a matter of developers inside of these companies being like, "Hey, do you have a team license?" So I I didn't at first, so I I just coded that into my platform, and uh, people started buying them. It, there's there's no real like enterprise sales process that I have. All it is is just there's developers that are inside of these companies. And they've got so much to spend every single year, either on conferences or training. And they like my stuff because they listen to the podcast. They've taken some of my free courses and they need to learn a specific tech. So they go ahead and and buy it. It's, it's kind of frustrating to I know that it's frustrating to companies because they often have these subscriptions that they're paying dearly for to these things like like Safari and, and Pluralsight. And then their developers come say, but I want Wes's instead, <laughs> which is always pretty funny. So I often have to write little emails to their, to their managers being like, these are the topics covered in it. And they likely I, I'm not saying if they're if they're not covered, but usually the, the employee are saying, like, I need to learn this and it's not specifically covered in uh, the thing we're already subscribed to. Well, since you are deeply familiar with the changing pace of front-end, I do want to ask you some about some different aspects of, of front-end development. So front-end engineering changed really significantly with React. There was finally consolidation around a front-end framework after there had been some fragmentation between Backbone and Angular and I think there were some other frameworks around that time. What did React get right? What do you think caused consolidation to finally happen around a front-end framework? Oh, that, I don't, that's a good question. I think that it was a bit of luck. I think Angular kind of handed it to them because Angular 1 was super popular at the time. Backbone was still pretty popular. People, some people were using Knockout. Ember had, had just come out. But Angular announced like way, way, way ahead of time. I think it was like a year or a year and a half that, hey, we are totally redoing Angular and Angular 2 is not going to look anything like Angular 1. Um, and that was me at the point. I was like, oh, well, so should I should I stop using Angular or like they're, at the time they, it was kind of poorly announced where they said there will be no upgrade path or something like that. And they, of course, figured out an upgrade path. But there was like thousands of developers, myself included, being like, 
well, I don't really want to continue investing my skills in this thing that's going to be dead in uh, in a year, a year and a half, or whenever it comes out. So maybe I'll just try some of the alternatives. So I tried out React and I really liked the way that it worked. I really liked how simple it was. I think that it was relatively simple to learn at the time because it didn't, and it still doesn't, it doesn't include anything like, you don't have to relearn how to fetch data. You don't have to relearn how to do like routing, or you don't have to relearn all of these, like like Angular always had like the Angular way to do something, and, and React was simply just like a the way to handle your templates. And if you want to fetch data or manage your data or do routing or anything like that, that's not part of what React does. And you have to reach outside and likely pick up some of these libraries that you're already familiar with. Have you worked with Vue? I haven't. That's It's kind of a, a funny ongoing joke on our podcast because that's like probably the most common question that I get is what are your thoughts on Vue? I've written a couple little things in it, but not enough to, to talk about it too much. But I do know that it is, I would say that it's even simpler than than React. It kind of takes the things that we loved about Angular 1 and, and marries them with the things that we love about React. But and then it also gets rid of some of these like weird things that we have in React that are sort of unnecessary to know. So I'm a big fan of it. I think that it's going to continue to, to become extremely popular. And also, like Vue is, is huge in China and a couple of other countries as well. As I, would, I know we don't hear about it maybe as often as we do, but some other countries, it's like the framework. That's fascinating. I feel like there might have been some kind of, there's some kind of cultural affiliation with these different frameworks. Like there's something about Angular coming out of, it came out of the Google world, right? Yeah, yeah. Like there's something about the Angular coming out of the Google world and then React coming out of the Facebook world of this ruthless pragmatism and kind of, you know, a feeling of just pragmatism that sometimes looks like sloppiness, but it's actually just pragmatism. Like, you know, JSX just looking appalling to people at first and then over time realizing it was really, really useful. And then Vue coming from this world of, you know, this one guy setting up this framework, but having kind of a vision for the design of the framework and, and the the experience uh, of the developer who who's using it. And then it seems like, you know, to some degree, it's kind of interchangeable between them, but except for the fact that you have these network effects, and then you get all this education and, uh, you know, stack overflow posts and stuff around the biggest game in town, which is React, and then it kind of becomes you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy that it, that it becomes the quote-unquote best framework just because it has the most resources around it. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing that that Vue has has such a high market share given that it was, it was initially just created by this one guy and now is used. I think Alibaba is a heavy user in, in Vue and I know a couple other large companies use it as well. So it, it is kind of interesting seeing uh, where people have come from. It, there was a, a time where it, the future of React looked very grim and Vue was gaining tons of popularity because of the, the, I'm not sure if you remember the patents clause that React had where Facebook could like own all your whole company and your, your, your children and everything if you wrote one line of React and people were freaking out about that. And uh, thankfully they came out and, and relicensed it so that it wasn't otherwise, because I was getting emails like all day long, what are your thoughts on this patent thing? And it was really frustrating because like I, Facebook's not going to come and take your family, but the way that their license was worded looked like they would. Yeah. Well, I mean, they have done things in the past that I think have, have uh, disrupted some level of trust with developers or with their community. So I guess, you know, they, 
well, whatever. It's hard to, hard to earn trust. Totally. Oh, I, I agree. It's, it's funny that React is from Facebook because it's probably one of the least trusted companies in most people's minds right now, which is like nobody likes Facebook right now. But I'm thankful for the nice little framework we get out of it. Yeah, and I, I really like the team. The team are really seem really yeah. open and interactive. Yeah. And so as the React ecosystem has matured, how has React development changed? Or has React development changed? Has it just been plumbing under the surface that's getting more efficient? Or has the actual writing of React apps evolved? Yeah, there was some some big updates about a year, a year and a half ago. React Fiber, and that was just a total under the hood rewrite of it, and and it just got much faster, and the API looked exactly the same. But in the next coming months, we are seeing a, a pretty big update to uh, what the API looks like. Not a rewrite because everyone sort of groans when when things change. They go, oh, of course, this I have to rewrite my entire application. But we're just getting more um, more APIs that will allow us to, to write these things in a kind of a nicer way. And the two big ones are the first one's called Suspense. And that's going to allow us to write these interfaces that rely on asynchronous data, because that's the big thing in the browser where the thing loads and you, you throw up a spinner and then you go off and fetch some data and you come back and before you know it, you got like 15 different spinners in your, your application and the whole thing is just uh, flashing back and forth as the data as the data loads into it and you have to re-render that component. So Suspense is going to make that much easier. It's kind of a, a really neat API where it almost looks synchronous, where you can just fetch the data and then render it out. And there's some rules where the higher components will be able to detect if lower components are in this suspended state. And then the other one is this new hooks interface. So React adopted classes, ES6 classes, uh, probably about two years ago to maybe maybe a little bit longer than that ago. And one of the downsides to React classes is that we don't have, we don't have properties inside of the classes, uh, like instance properties, which was a huge pain if you ever want to put a method that is bound to that instance. So there's all these like workarounds where you can use this like ES6 thing, or you can use this like proposal and an arrow function that will bind to the instance. And they've come out with this new thing, which is called hooks. And, and hooks are going to allow us to just not you can still use classes but you can just write a function that returns some jsx and if you need to hook into things like state or context or the event cycle event event methods which are like component will mount and component did update and component will unmount if you need to hook into any of that and do some side effects you can do that fairly simply just with these nice little functions that are called hooks your front-end teaching... I should stop saying front-end. I'm just going to say web development. Your web development teaching... Yeah, I don't care what you say. It's Sometimes people get all bent out of shape about front-end versus back-end. But yeah, it's just we're just making websites and web apps here. Yeah, I, I think it's just because, you know, it's like, like you're not spinning up Kafka clusters and Kubernetes yeah. and VMs and stuff. And so, <laughs> I don't know. That's, anyway, so your teaching also includes GraphQL. And GraphQL is a system for unifying data access and making it simpler and faster for developers to issue these complex queries that hit a lot of different data sources. How has GraphQL changed how you think about web development? Oh, that, that's a good question. I think that 
it makes oh, GraphQL makes uh, attacking certain queries that can be could be complex uh, very very simple. So I don't think that it has really like changed the way I think about web development. But I just know that it's going to be a lot easier when you build a complex application with GraphQL. And it's no sweat to make a whole bunch of different types of models and link them together. Whereas like maybe maybe before where if I had a bunch of different pieces of data. I wouldn't want to like have to deal with the creating multiple models and and all the relationships between them and and two way updating and all that sort of headache that comes along with that. So GraphQL and a lot of the tooling that supports GraphQL because GraphQL is just a is just a spec and there's there's a whole lot of tooling that needs to happen on your server underneath the hood to actually do those relationships. But it's really cool because it's going to allow us and it already does allow us to do a lot of these queries right from our client in the browser or you can run GraphQL wherever you really want without having to worry about setting up endpoints and and getting all the data and then maybe waiting for three pieces of data and joining them together and, and making sure they all relate to each other, which has always been a bit of a, a pain, at least for me in the past. So I, I know that GraphQL is useful for these gigantic apps with lots of data sources. So obviously coming out of Facebook, is it also useful for smaller applications? Should people just start with GraphQL from day one with their small applications? Yeah, I think that it does work really well for small applications, but there is an overhead, which is setting everything up. Um, there is an overhead, which is setting up your, you have to set up your your schema still. So you could either have your existing schema in your database, or you could have like an existing data source that's coming from somewhere else. And then you have to set up your your resolvers on your server. And then you also have to set up the, the queries on your client side. Whereas in the past, it just used to be like, I don't know, spin up an endpoint, hit that endpoint, dump some data, and we'll, we'll catch that in the client and, and run with it. So it's there's definitely a lot more of a, a setup with, with GraphQL. And there's a lot of tools out there that this might not be the case in in six months, a year. There's a lot of tools and, and people out there trying to make this a lot easier than it is right now, which is which is pretty exciting. So should you use it on your, your little project? I probably would say not unless you know that you're going to have a, a whole bunch of relational data. And I, I think you'll probably reach a point in that project where you go, ah, oh, this is probably worth me spinning up a, a GraphQL server and, and switching over to that right now versus, oh, I've got a weekend. I want to build something fun. I just want to hack it together. Um, should you go through the the setup of it? I probably would say no, not just yet. Yeah. So you mentioned this tooling. There are some different GraphQL open source tools. There's Relay, which is just Facebook's original open source GraphQL what is it? There's it's a GraphQL server. What what does it do again? No, so there's a couple pieces that you need if you're doing GraphQL. You need something on your server that will serve up that will respond to these GraphQL queries with the appropriate data and and how these data get out of your database or from your data source. Those are called resolvers. So you first need something on your server that will will run that. And whether that's you just you write your own or um, there's a lot of like kind of. There's two big ones. There's one called Hasura, and then there's one called Prisma. Prisma is the one I use in my own course, where they do the whole 
database, API, relationship, schema, all that stuff for you. And then you need something on the client side, which is actually going to be making these queries. And the two big ones out there for client side development are Relay, which comes from Facebook, and Apollo, which uh, comes from folks who were behind Meteor for all those years. Okay, right. So if I'm a front-end developer, I'm going to make a GraphQL request to the GraphQL server that's going to interpret that query and hit all the necessary data sources to return my one unified request. And then so in that entire query process, you need something on the client that's helping you issue the query, which is Apollo or Relay. And then on the server side, you you have Prisma uh, or Hasura, you said? Hasura, Hasura. yeah. It's uh, I think it's built in. Let me just double check. It, it's built on Postgres. So Prisma will take in your schema and go out to I think it's MySQL or Mongo or or Postgres. It will work with all the different databases. And Hasura just sits directly on top of um, Postgres. But then you still, at that point, you still need all of your. Um, you still need a logic layer at that point, which is going to ha- handle your file uploads, all of your authentication, any extra logic that you want on there, pass your CRUD operations of, of these data pieces. Right. Okay, so this is useful because, well, the reason you want these these resolvers is because the GraphQL request doesn't look like a Postgres query, and so you need some layer to interpret that GraphQL request, which looks kind of like a JSON object, into like a Postgres query or whatever, MongoDB query or something. Yeah, that was one thing that that really tripped me up at first is GraphQL is not really a query language because it doesn't it doesn't actually do anything for you. It doesn't query your database. It doesn't do any filtering. All it does is allows you to make requests where, which are either queries or a mutation. And then it's up to you to figure out how do I complete this query or mutation under the hood. And to a lot of people, that's really frustrating because you you have to define your schema in GraphQL on your server. You have to define your schema in your database. And then you also have to define your schema in the client side. And those things are often the same, but sometimes are different. Like if you want to request a user, you don't want to be able to surface their password to the client side, but you do want that data on the on the server side, right? Right. So so we did a show with Prisma not too long ago, and I was trying to to understand how big is the market for tooling around GraphQL, and and is there a what would the business? And I think I mean they kind of have an interesting situation where obviously there okay there is room for tooling around GraphQL. You're saying you use Prisma yourself. And then, but then there's a question of like, how can you build a business around that? How can they're they're faced with the interesting question of how do you take that query interpretation layer and turn that into a business? What do you think of the business around GraphQL tooling? Is there a market there? Absolutely, I think this comes back to the first question you're asking me: is like, why are people becoming full stack? And it's because of services like this, right? Like the the React developer who is knows how to build a wicked front end application doesn't necessarily want to be bothered with the setting up the entire cuz most of these applications are just like crud operations we're just saving data to a database pulling it out and and all of that so 
I, th- I think that having a something do it for you, I'm not sure whether it's something like Prisma or Asura or something that you you throw up on a, a, do- a Docker image yourself. I think that is going to be become really popular. We already see it with with services like like Firebase and and Parse and whatnot. If you can just like take that whole part away from me, I think that's great. And I, I think even even further, what we'll probably see in, in the next little bit is we'll see entire things where people put the user accounts and authentication on top of that as well, because that's that's one thing you currently still have to, to roll yourself. Amazon came out with something recently, right? There's some kind of like backend as a service suite of tools that came out of the, because they, they acquired a GraphQL company. Have you followed the AWS tooling world in terms of GraphQL? I, yeah, the, what the name of that is, I was just looking Amplify? at it today. Hold is it Amplify? On, one sec. Yeah, yeah, a- AWS Amplify, that's what it is. I think that's pretty interesting. I haven't haven't really looked at it all that much. Just there's so many so many things that are in this space right now, but it definitely is interesting to me. If you look at Firebase, they're trying to do this as well with like serverless functions and they also do your authentication, they also do your real-time database. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I definitely see that people are going to be able to build apps on top of these platforms because they don't necessarily want to or need uh, access to the whole layer underneath it. Yeah, I've used Firebase a number of times, and I really, really liked it. So you got Firebase and also Netlify in terms of the really simplified backend hosting kind I mean I guess I don't know do you consider Firebase and Netlify in the same category Well Netlify is more of like um you push your so there's this whole idea of called like the Jamstack where you just have a it stands for JavaScript APIs and markup right and uh you you write your react application that will talk to a server somewhere uh, and come back and the idea of Netlify is that you you can host your very you can host your entire application on Netlify because it's just HTML and JavaScript and CSS. They are also getting into to serverless functions as well because that's going to be helping. That's going to help do the whole API endpoint of it. I don't. I don't necessarily know. I haven't looked too much into the Firebase hosting side of things. So they probably are competitors at at some point. But Netlify, at least in my books, is a is like the answer to like where do I easily throw, host up a, a React project or one of these like uh, server single page applications without any of the headache that often comes along with trying to configure like a Nginx or Apache or something like that on your existing box. Right, and there's something about the Netlify path to deployment that's really simplified, and it's just, okay, we just kind of do this one thing, and then there's other things that we do off to the side of that, but you come to us for being able to have a Git workflow and pushing to hosting and having this really simplified path. Whereas Firebase, I think they do, they do have a hosting, but maybe like that one simplified thing that you go to Firebase for is more you want a real-time database, and the, they do have hosting, but I think the, the onboarding path to that is uh, less, less clear than in terms of the, the hosting than probably Netlify's direction so yeah i was at the jamstack conf and i we, we were going to meet up there and i think we just uh, our paths didn't cross or i don't know I, I wasn't there i was only there for one day but it was an interesting conference because this was a side of dev- of front-end development or whatever full stack development that i really have not seen much firsthand because a lot of the shows that i do i'm talking to 
like an engineer from Netflix. And it's like Netflix is probably not using the Jamstack because they're like building Netflix. Have you started to see people building full-fledged businesses or like, you know, startups built on the Jamstack? Or do you think it's still very nascent? That's a good question. I don't I don't know if I just like look at anybody's website. I don't know if that is Jamstack or not because I don't like open up the, the terminal. So I, I can't give you any examples of, of what it is. But what I think I'll get to tell you one thing. I was looking yesterday at the Gatsby uh, documentation. So Gatsby is kind of like a, a React based I don't want to say static site generator because that, that has like the wrong connotation, but like it's the, the ability to make a website with React. And their tutorial for learning it is very much aimed at setting up your development environment and you should use Prettier and, and you should use these extensions on VS Code. And here's some other things like these are not anything related with Gatsby, but they're related with becoming uh, like a web developer. So what, what I thought was cool about that is that they are obviously targeting what the WordPress developer was eight years ago, where the, the, the person's first entry into web development at the time was WordPress, and then they started hacking away and, and were able to, to build a website. I think that's what a lot of these companies are are targeting right now, just because these are people, new people learning a new way of, of building applications. And, and maybe in a couple of years, as they become intermediate advanced developers, this is going to be the way that they, they know how to build stuff. It's as much like you talk to people who have been doing WordPress for, for 10 years. That's the way that they know how to how to build stuff, and that's how they that's how they always solve their problems. So you're pretty familiar with the WordPress world, right? What did you think of that rollout of the new they because they updated their kind of the interface, and they they had this you know strong push towards React, and there was some turmoil in the community around that. But you know you you got to be sympathetic to to Matt Mullenweg for you know, to some degree, because it's, the platform is, it's got, it's it's an old older platform. He's got to do something to, to push it forward. And so what did you think of his, you know, the decision to, to or maybe you could just retell what exactly happened in the WordPress community and, and your thoughts on it. So WordPress has this, they've been using this thing called a tiny MCE for their editor, and they've given you one box to input your data. And uh, inside of that box, you can use an H2 and a paragraph tag and you insert image and and all that stuff. And if you wanted a better experience, like uh, people are flocking to Medium for a while there because Medium has this really nice writing experience. So they made this thing called Gutenberg, which is this idea is that you're allowed to like create these Guten blocks and you can create these different sections of content and move them around and uh, create your own custom input Guten blocks and, and all that. And it's just kind of this new authoring experience to WordPress in general. And that whole authoring experience is rich. So it needs to be built in something like React. And thankful they were they wrote the entire thing in, in React and then the, the, the patent stuff came out. And Facebook wasn't budging on the patent stuff. And then uh, Matt Mullenway came out and started to flex and said, all right, well, we better rewrite this thing in view. And then a couple of days later, Facebook came out and fixed the patent stuff, which was good. So that was a bit of a side. I, I think it's really exciting that we are getting a better authoring experience. I know from what I've heard from users is that they are much happier with it. So not necessarily the developers, but the people who are using it on the other end, they are much happier. The people who I see who are 
are uh, unhappy with it. First, there's apparently some accessibility issues with it, which is silly that they haven't been addressed yet, because that's not something you should ever do to anyone using your website is make it inaccessible. So so that's one thing. I think that can probably be solved, though. I think the, the bigger thing is that in order to work with this thing, you need React. You need to know React. And I know that in the WordPress community, there's a lot of really good developers, but I know that there's a lot of more like hobbyists where they've they've known they know how to make like a pretty good theme and they know they have their their plugins that they've built. There's this huge ecosystem all built on PHP and all these plugins built on this old editor. And then this is now getting shooken up and it's leaving some people out because they've probably tried to learn JavaScript many times and it's a frustrating language to learn. It's, it's pretty hard. So I, I think that's probably where a lot of these pain points are coming from where people are frustrated that they have to relearn something. WordPress has been very stable for the last, I don't know, six, eight years. Uh, I've my own WordPress website. I just updated I, the other day. I, I just said I YOLO updated like 20 of my plugins and nothing broke. That's unheard of in, in JavaScript land. It, everything will break every week in JavaScript land. So I think that that's probably what it is at right now. There's a lot of frustrated developers that they have to relearn. It's a different experience. I'm sure there's lots of other little valid concerns with it as well. But I think on the whole, it's it's good that they're doing this. What is it about WordPress that has allowed it to stay so dominant for so long? I think it's just, it's easy to learn. It's It was my first uh, entry into web development. It's a lot of people's entry. You can get something up and running really quickly. Huge, huge community of, uh, of WordPress developers, of plugins, of meetups. Like if, if you ever go to a WordPress conference or anything like that, uh, these are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet <laughs> in your your entire life. So I think also just like ease of deployment, you can just drag and drop the sucker up onto a server, hook it up with the MySQL database and, and you're up and running. So I think for the longest time, it was the best solution. And I think it's it still is one of the best solution because like I think headless WordPress is going to be something that is huge in the, in the next couple of years where you can still build your website in in React if you want, and uh, you just use the WordPress as a as a server that you can pull your data from. Have you have you spent much time working with Gatsby? Do you have any perspective on how you think Gatsby is going? So Gatsby, as you said, is this, I guess, a headless way of deploying your websites, or how would you describe it? So the best way to explain it is it's like a static site generator. So you you, you get React. Static site generator, right. You get your router. Uh, you get all the way to the link between pages. Then it, So right off the bat, it's it's going to be like pre-built. So it's just going to be really, really fast. There's service workers built in. There's a lot of plugins for things like compressing and doing smart things with images. There's a lot of plugins for bringing your own data. So if you want to attach that to a WordPress or Markdown or any GraphQL API, you totally can. That's the whole idea. So I definitely think that a Gatsby is, I'm going to call it like the next WordPress. Like there's the whole like authoring end of it definitely still needs to be solved. Like you can obviously bring your own, you can bring your own, you can still use WordPress, but I think it's just going to be making a website really easy and making a really good and fast website really easy. Yeah. So you teach JavaScript, but you have this broader set of skills around design and business and marketing. I was just spending a lot of time browsing your websites and the different courses you have and the design of them. The attention to detail 
it's really well done and it's it's just beautiful it speaks to there's a there's a oh, there's a, certainly an artistic sense there but also a well-honed sense of who your audience is and the kind of the marketing and the business elements of it and the pricing like the i think the pricing is really seems really well calibrated what advice do you have for developers who want to complement their engineering because you 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 have a very deep engineering skill set and i think on the indie hackers podcast you did which was really good by the way with Cortland, he asked you like of all these different skills that you have which one would you could you not do without and you said software development of course but you really do have ha- the you have the depth of the software development but you have a, like a, a kind of the t-shaped you know you have a, the competency in the design and business and marketing and so on what advice do you have for developers who want to complement their engineering skill set? Oh, that's a good question. I think that the marketing stuff for sure can be learned. It's just the whole marketing space is so icky. Uh, I think that's the best way to describe it because you you go out there and you start looking for, for marketing advice and it's all stuff that you hate being done to you because we're developers. We know how this stuff works. Like it's, it's very hard to trick us into things like that. So I think that the marketing stuff can be learned just by knowing who your audience is and, and knowing what works well. And I think it, the reason why it works so well is because like I just asked myself, how would I market this stuff to myself? And then you also listen to things like the Indie Hackers podcast. And there's there's lots of like really good tips from people's businesses that are outside of what I do. So I'll give you an example. My my most popular course, which is JavaScript30.com. It's a free course. And I have, I think, over 200,000 people have signed up for this course. How I got that, I was listening to a, pod, a business podcast about a green smoothie challenge where this these two girls have this thing called the green smoothie 30 day challenge. And they got their green smoothie girls and they send you like one a day and you like you go buy the ingredients and you make a smoothie. And that's a challenge. I'm like, that's awesome. That I bet fun. that would work really well for JavaScript. <laughs> And it did. It did work really well. And there's obviously a lot more to why that course did so well. But I think that there's something to be said for don't just like look at like what are other because I see people all the time just copying exactly what I do, like right down to the FAQs. People have copy pasted it. And that's not going to work. I've already done that. That's I know my audience and, and why I've done that. But if you look elsewhere and what is working well in other industries and figure out how do I apply that to what I'm trying to do here. So that was marketing design. Uh, I've I started off as a designer many years ago, and I've always just had a, a I guess an eye for that. It, like I definitely wasn't good when I started, but I've always enjoyed uh, trying to design things. And and also like when you're building a course, it's it's tough to to build a course for eight months and being able to stop writing GraphQL queries and pick a font and a color scheme and the right texture is very, very nice when you are so sick of writing JavaScript all day long. Did you do that green smoothie challenge or did you just did you just hear about it? <laughs> I didn't do it. No, uh, I just heard about it. Okay. I've made some green smoothies and sometimes they taste really good. Sometimes they taste awful. But usually it's like you have to put, you know, it starts to get really sugary when you put more fruit in it and anyway that's a different topic yeah yeah it's a i we've done green smoothies and my favorite is uh lots of ginger that'll that's not full of sugar but it makes it taste great that's right that's right ginger or like lime you could do some lime or lemon so the job market is changing and developers can work remotely they can do consulting through fiverr or upwork or they can stand up their own company 
and it's it's much easier to start a company today than ever before and there seem to be more solo developers than ever before that's the whole thrust of Corlin's indie hacker thing and then you know you, you, as you have done you can learn this variety of skills that you need to to thrive as as an individual have you experienced any cost of that like the the experience of being a solo developer do you feel like you're missing out by not working on a larger team. I mean, obviously you have people you work with and, and various partners, but it's not really like a software development team as far as I can tell. Do you feel like you're missing out at all? I don't feel like, like I know I am for sure. There's there's things like like scaling up a server or like I was asking the other day on just like on Twitter, I was asking for recommendations on kind of like self-hosted Heroku. And, and there's all these like things where when websites get to a certain point, like I would love to, I probably wouldn't love it, but like I would love to work at Netflix for a little bit because I'm sure there's a lot I could learn about building really big websites or or problems that they've run into. Because when you work on a team and you work at specific types of businesses, there's things that you will run into that you will never run into as an independent developer. Like I've worked with many companies, especially as a consultant, I've, I've seen a lot, but I'm sure there's stuff that I'm missing out on it. Um, but that doesn't really bother me just because like I do come across a lot of different situations that I need to solve in my own course platform in when I was doing consulting. And I know that I'm not trying to to know absolutely everything. I know that I'm just trying to be pretty good at React and Node.js. And, and that's kind of that's my lane that I try to stay in. Yeah. And I guess you solve the isolation part of your business by well, you have a family, but also you go and do teaching in person. So you don't, I, because I think isolation, that's actually one of the reasons that drives people to not want to do remote work as much. Yeah. I actually don't teach in person anymore, other than just like workshops every once every couple of months. But I, I love being alone. <laughs> I, I, I like, I'm on Twitter all day long, I'm on Slack all day long. And if I could wish anything else, it would be that more people would leave me alone. <laughs> There's just and it's not that like I'm very extroverted uh, and like I'm the life of the party when I'm out with my friends. But there's something so sweet about not having meetings and not having questions from everybody and just being able to uh, open my calendar and there's nothing on my calendar for the day and be able to just hack away and, and work on whatever it is that I, I want to get done. I'm totally with you there. You know, the the first year or so starting this podcast, there was like, oh, I was like, this is just great. You know, I'm just grinding and I can just kind of make my own schedule and so on. But I, I reached this point where I was like, I think I'm going slightly insane because I'm just spending all my time in my apartment with my cats and like barely go, you know, because you're just trying, you know, you've, part of you, or at least for me, I was just like, I want to own my own thing and I want to be able to have my own thing and I'm just going to focus on it completely and I can get completely absorbed in it. But you lose if you don't go out enough or if you just only go to the coffee shop and whatever. I, personally speaking, I began to like lose a sense of proportion in the world because I just wasn't interacting with enough people and I really had to strive to do more interaction with other people. I don't, maybe that wasn't any, maybe you, you have friends or something. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I've got, I got lots of friends who go out for coffee every now and then, see them on the weekends, talk to people. Like I also uh, do my own podcast. So I, I talked to Scott, my co-host for three or four hours on audio all, all week long. So People ask me about that all the time, and I have ne I can say that that has never been an issue for me. Okay, let's talk about the podcast more, because you host Syntax FM, which is a popular podcast about web development. What 
makes for a good web development podcast? I think that we started it off because, no offense to your podcast, but I, I, we haven't found many web development podcasts like that were, were very good. There's lots of them out there, but they're either dry, the audio is terrible, they're not out frequent enough, they're not all that interesting, at least to us. So we kind of said, let's do a podcast and a, a couple of our, our key points where it needs to be helpful. So it's not just us sitting around shooting the about about how things work, we actually want to make it almost like a tutorial, the podcast. So I want you to, to, that's why we call it a Tasty Treat podcast, because we want you to leave listening to the podcast going, huh, I actually learned a couple of things listening to that podcast. That was really helpful. Or I had no idea what Coors was. And I just listened to a 25 minute podcast and Wes explained what Coors was. And it's just like stuff like that, where I get emails like all the time, people are just have questions about things. And it's so nice to just be able to point them to a podcast and say, listen to this, it will fill you in on everything that's going on. So that was the first one. Second one was, it's funny. We goof around a lot on the podcast, so it keeps it entertaining. And I think that's that's part of the the reason why a lot of people listen to it is that we, we keep it nice and fun. Right. So I think this is a distinction between your show and mine is that you're a practitioner you are actually working with this stuff and you have a deep understanding of how React works, whereas I'm I'm typically doing more of a survey of these kinds of things. But this approach to doing a tutorial-style podcast, what's the key to explaining complex topics over audio? Because I've, I've struggled with exactly what is the... Because, you know, if somebody's, like, in their car or they're at the gym... To what degree do they, you know, can they process a tutorial if they're doing, if they're multitasking? Because, you know, if I'm watching your course on my computer, I'm going to be fully focused and I'm going to have a window open that's the terminal. And even then I might have to rewind a little bit and go back and be like, okay, you know, here's this thing. And what's the key to explaining complex topics over audio? We make sure that, or we try not to get into the syntax too much and more focus on uh, like core ideas. So we had an episode on React hooks. So we would explain what are some of the problems with the way React works right now? What are some examples where you might use a class? And then what are React hooks? What problems do they solve? What are some actual use cases where, where you'd want to reach for these things? And, and how can you build your own? So somebody going to work, riding their bike, driving their car, I like to think of it as surface area. They are now aware of, of React hooks. They're aware of the core concepts behind them. And then they can pick up one of my tutorials or go read the docs or or something like that to actually see how it works. So it's more just about like people don't necessarily know that these things exist or what they are or just kind of like I like the, the the word surface area a lot is that you just sometimes you just like want to like tap into two guys talking about web development. So, you know, what is out there and in which direction you should be going. People say all the time. I discovered Gatsby on the podcast and, and now I rebuilt my website. And thanks so much. Right. Like how would somebody have discovered that if they're not like us and on Twitter 24 seven? Why have podcasts grown in popularity recently? I think it's because it's downtime. You can fill in your downtime. I listen to podcasts at the gym. I listen to podcasts when I'm going grocery shopping, when I'm driving my car. And it's just a great way to, in, in, instead of watching a video tutorial or reading a book, because you have to like set aside 
for that. This is sort of just passive learning where if you're going to, instead of listening to music or just the dumb radio station, why not throw something that's helpful on and, and forward your career a little bit? What are the problems with the podcast infrastructure? Like, Because whenever I, I look at the podcast infrastructure, I'm like, oh, there's something wrong here. Why does it work this way? Why is there no, you know, really good searchability over individual podcast episodes, for example? I mean, I've been tempted to, you know, maybe I can build something around podcasting, but there's such a big graveyard of businesses that have been tried to, you know, people have tried to build around podcast infrastructure. What are the problems that you see with the podcast infrastructure? And, and, and do you think there's any business that could be built there? I think searchability is is probably the biggest one that we have. People ask us all the time, you should do like, when did you talk about this? Or you should talk about this. So I think like once a podcast becomes more than six months old, it's dusty and it's very hard for people to actually surface those. So we've been talking about how do we change our website to surface different ideas or top episodes or, or things like that. So that's probably a big one. The advertising model is, an, is another big one. I know that I listen to podcasts that I know are from like NPR and I get Canadian ads in them. And I know that they're doing something in that process to geolocate my IP when I download it and download the version with the Canadian ads in it. So I think that is also kind of kind of interesting as well. We're lucky because our sponsors don't necessarily care about where people live just because as long as they're they're web developers. But I know a lot of other podcasts have that problem where you need to be able to localize the, the advertising. Right. So you've built a very successful business teaching people and doing podcasting and doing teaching and or, uh, I guess in-person teaching. Do you have any desire to do a startup? No, I don't. Like I've always been interested in in those things, but my main motivation in everything that I do is just to make like a comfortable balanced family life that I have and and being able to just like like I said sit down and do whatever I want. I just want to go up to my office. I don't want to have to have meetings and things like that. I just want to be able to to build my own thing. So that's kind of what I'm doing and I also just like absolutely love teaching people uh, things. That's that's why I got into that. So there hasn't been been much of like a, oh, that would be a cool startup or, or something like that. There, there's a couple things around delivering video better, which I think could be fixed. And I know there's a couple startups in that area right now, but it's, it's never something I've wanted to, to solve myself. Okay. Well, Wes Boss, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. And I'm impressed by your ability to know what you want and to <laughs> to get it. You know, you've gotten it. You're there. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's, it's been fun coming yeah, on. Yeah, continued success. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Wow.